You are so kind, my friend, for many reasons. Thank you for uh, taking a seat. One of the reasons that, that Nathan, great friend, but he's going up on my list of friends, he just talked to you and prayed about things like finances and, and stewardship. And, and if any of you have been paying attention to sort of a, an evolving role for me here, I've begun to ease into being the point person for making sure that time, talents, and treasures that God has given all of us are stewarded well for the benefit of this world. And, and so part of the reason I'm even preaching now is to say it's an opportunity to share those kinds of words of hope. And so Nathan joined me in that. I'm so grateful for him. I'm also so grateful for the Word of God and what we get to share today. Before I get started looking into the Word, though, I just want to ask you a couple of questions and sort of draw you into the story that we're, the three stories that we're about to hear. And so if you would, consider this. Have you ever been so confused, so discombobulated, so, so despairing that you couldn't even see straight? Hmm. Have you ever been so afraid, so nervous, so panic-stricken that you couldn't even move or even leave the home, maybe even recently? Have you ever been so sure you were right confident in your position, ready to take on the world, only to find out you were wrong, dead wrong. If if any of that touches you, my friend, you're not alone, and be encouraged. We have a lot to learn this morning. The power of this passage of post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ, Jesus appears and makes all the difference in the tears, the fears, and the doubts of his followers. Then, and now. So if you would, open up your scriptures, uh, open up your phone if you have, have that. We're going to turn to John chapter 20. And you'll remember from these last couple of messages, Pastor Matt shared with us about the, the death and the resurrection of Christ. Uh, these last couple of weeks, now we turn to, well, the empty tomb. And of course, you know that John and Peter had run there and verified it was empty. And they left, headed back to their homes. Now Mary is approaching this differently. Instead of hiding, Mary, Mary's, Mary's weeping. She is just simply weeping. And she's there at the tomb, and she begins to stoop and to, to look in. And what she sees is, the, is a couple of angels in white. And, and, and that's where this story picks up. We're going to begin in verse 13 with these words. In verse 13, we see, These two angels said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Now, it feels like a strange question to me because when you've lost your Savior, of course you're weeping. But they ask her, why are you weeping? Tears are good. Tears are healing. We need to cry. But why are they asking her this question? Well, they're asking her this question because she hasn't gotten it yet. Why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have taken and laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Now this speaks, friends, to to how deep her grief is. Her tears were so much. Now, it was fairly common in post-resurrection appearances of Jesus for people not to recognize him at first. Happened in many of these stories. But, But with Mary, I think it was the added fact that she was just so distraught by this. Now, 
Of course. I mean, this, this is hard. This is, this is appropriate. But she didn't even recognize Jesus. That's the despair and the depth of what she was feeling at that time. <clears throat> Jesus then said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Asked the same question that the angels did. But then he got a little more specific. He asked the question, whom are you seeking? Getting a little closer in there. And went on to say, supposing him to be the, the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. I will take him away. <laughs> this even speaks to the depth of, of her despair. Little Mary's thinking, wherever Jesus is, I'll pick him up. I'll carry him to where he's supposed to be. She's, she's not thinking rationally. Of course she's not seeing Jesus at that point in time. But then Jesus turns a corner. And what do we see here when he turns this corner? He gets not just specific. He gets personal. And he says to her, Mary. And of course, as soon as she hears her name and she puts it together, she turned to him and she said in Aramaic, Rabuni, which, is, which means teacher. And I can't imagine, it doesn't include it in the text, but what do you think she did right then? She must have jumped up. She must have grabbed him. She must have embraced him, probably tackled him, held onto him so tightly. There's just so much hint that this is how passionately she felt. And and, and of course, I mean, put yourself into the story. Three days ago, she's watching him on a cross die. She knows that they put him in the tomb. She knows that he died. And there he is, alive, with her. Of course, of course she's absolutely thrilled. Jesus, though, says something very interesting. He said to her, don't cling to me. Don't cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to my Father. Now that cling word actually sort of has the sense of don't even, don't touch me. And we'll come back to that. There's, there's some significant meaning in it, but don't cling to me. Don't, don't touch me is what he says. Now, she's in the midst of holding on to him, so there's more to that. But as we continue with this right now, what he gives her is not a let's just stay here. He gives her a mission. He sends her. He says, I have something for you to do. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and my God and your father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. He has risen and that he had said these things to her. What just happened right here? I mean, so much. Mary just became the first evangelist after the resurrection. Mary became the first preacher to ever deliver a message of hope and say, I have seen the Lord. He has risen. He has risen indeed. Something transformational has happened to her. She's in a puddle of tears one minute. And then, all of a sudden, she, she, she is up. She's, she's there. And what happens when we encounter Jesus in this kind of a time is a transformation. The way I would put it most is, is what you see on this slide, is that when Jesus appears... Tears turn into trust and a story to tell. Mary traded in her tears for a trust and a story to tell. 
And she went and she told the disciples, this is powerful to me. But as we press on and look at the rest of this, this next story, we find that there's a continuing plan that Jesus has, and it's beautiful and it's powerful. In the midst of her tears, Mary rises. So, beginning in verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. So think of this scene. We've already heard about Mary's tears. Now we're going to talk about the fears of the disciples. And what happens? And Jesus walks in. The door doesn't hold him back. And he says, peace be with you. Shalom. Very common greeting in the Middle East. But it's not just the absence of difficulty. It is this fullness of life that he wishes them. And that he's about to demonstrate to them what that looks like. So, of course, they're astonished. We don't know exactly how they reacted. But Jesus did say, look at my hands. Look at the nail scars. Look at my side. Uh, he, he, he invites them to see that clearly. And, and the Bible says his disciples were glad. <laughs> Does that feel like the biggest understatement in the world? My goodness. But they go on, and they have this little encounter. And we don't exactly, John sort of gets right down to business. If you look at this episode, according to Luke, Jesus says, hey, you got some food to eat? You know, he's sort of demonstrating that I am alive. I'm not just a ghost. This isn't just an appearance of, 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 of a spirit. I am a resurrected Jesus Christ. And so as, as his disciples truly get that, Jesus says to them again, peace be with you. They must have needed a little bit more peace. Repeated that greeting, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Oh my goodness, friends. So again, did the same thing with Mary, but he's about to do it with 10 of his disciples. He's saying, I have a mission for you. I'm going to send you, just as I, I, the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And not only am I going to give you a mission, I'm going to give you what you need. I'm going to give you power and authority. Breathe into you the Holy Spirit. This, this is like Old Testament stuff. Ruach would be the, the Hebrew word. Genesis chapter 2, God breathes life into Adam. Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones. God brings life out of death, out of dryness, out of emptiness. This is our God, and this is Jesus saying, I am God, and I'm going to give you what you need. Breathe the Holy Spirit into them. And then went on to say, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now pause there for a second, if you would. If you just read this literally, that sounds like heresy. For any of us to have the audacity that we could forgive sins or withhold forgiveness. But if you look a little closer at this text and realize, even if you look in the original, there's a sense in the verb tenses where it's, if you have forgiven the sins of any, they have already been forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it has already been withheld. What does that mean? How does that interpret? The mission and the power is so that they can declare forgiveness. The forgiveness that Jesus has already won by his death and resurrection. And that is what they bear. When you tell people about Jesus, when you share the truth of this, people get freed from their sins. And when you don't, when you keep the message to yourself, and when you cower in fear, 
people don't get forgiven him. Lostness happens. So there's a heaviness, there's a beauty, there's a power to this. And Jesus is very clearly saying to his disciples, not only do I take the tears of Mary and turn them into trust in a story to tell, I also take your fears and I transform them. I fill them. I transform them into faithful, forward-focused, forgiveness message. And all that you need in order to share that. So look at what he's doing. I mean, Jesus is basically just saying, I know it's tough. I know you don't understand all this yet, but whether you're crying or whether you're fearful, I am here and I got a plan. Can't wait to see what he does with Thomas. That's what's next. So let's look at beginning in verse 24. Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin or Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Pause there does make me wonder, where was Thomas? <laughs> Doesn't say, we don't know. I-, I wonder if he might have been isolating, socially distancing. I- what do you think was going on there? It doesn't doesn't make it clear, but what's clear and what, what the implications are is that by being disconnected, by being away, he, he lost something. And I, I, I actually experienced this this morning. Before I go on, I'll tell you this quick story. I, I, I've told you before I like to run. Honestly, if I can confess, during COVID, haven't done much of that. All my clothes feel tighter. It's really uncomfortable. But this morning, five of us from my running group got, got together, and we actually ran together. And, and in the midst of it, we were talking to each other and just saying, you know, none of us have been doing much running because we had to do it alone. And, and we're like... It's hard to run alone. Why is it so much easier together? Why is it so much better? And literally, because we have a psychologist in the group, Terry chimed in and said, well, that's social facilitation. I'm like, what What in the world's that? Social facilitation is the phenomenon when you are together and with people, things go better. It's the reason we're most supposed to be connected. We're built for this. And so Thomas, whatever it was, he was missing out on that. Social distancing versus social facilitation. And in the midst of this, we see that that, that, that cost him something. So the other disciples told him, have, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side. I will never believe. (laughs) Can you believe the audacity? I, I mean, I'm thinking, that's crazy. But actually, if you put yourself into the story, nobody had really seen resurrection up to this point in history. I mean, this was normal, I would think. Most people would doubt and honestly, what's really cool about this is that Thomas's doubts become a bit of a doorway for something very profound. As we press on in the story, eight days later, verse 26, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. What what do you think was going on here? 
I, I honestly feel like this is, there's just so much here. First of all, he says, peace be with you for the third time. <laughs> I, I, I don't think that, I mean, if you were telling the story of the gospel, you wouldn't just put hello in there like three times, would you? There's something to this. I, I experience that a little bit anytime I, I run into Joe Curtis. You all know Joe Curtis? Joe's one of our shepherding elders. He's part of the security team. Joe and Priscilla, just salt-of-the-earth people, absolutely love them. Joe, since the moment I met him, the first day I ever met him, you know what he said to me when I said hi to him? He said, peace. Said it to you, too. Lisa, to me, just say you. <laughs> peace. When I, when I hear Joe say to me, peace, and when I look in his eyes, I feel Jesus. I sense Jesus is with us. I'm not sure what that is. I'm not telling you all to say peace to each other every time you greet each other. I, it's, it's not something that's a trick or a gimmick. There's something about peace here that actually makes sense. The, the immediate obedience that we see reflected in this is, is powerful. So I'm going to turn to that at this point in time. I just... Um, one more point. Nah, we'll go here first. So here we are. He said, peace. He said, do not disbelieve, but believe. And in verse 28, we see Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Again, so much in this. First of all, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Again, reminiscent of Old Testament words. You don't say this to anybody but God. These are words, these are the Greek equivalents of the Hebrew words, Yahweh and Elohim. A good Hebrew would not even say Yahweh, would not even write it. He'd take out the vowels. I mean, this is, what is this? This is worship. Thomas responds with worship. He, he, he just exclaims what is true. And what he's saying right here is, Jesus, you are who you say you are. We say, of course, because we've gotten so used to these stories. Don't get used to these stories. Let this impact you. Let Feel this. There's a, there was an immediate dependence upon, upon God that came with him. And I, I feel like this is such a big pivot in a couple of different ways. First of all, Thomas gets transformed. I mean, Thomas becomes the apostle that tradition tells us carried the gospel to India farther than any other disciple. There's, there's such a radical obedience that happened. How does that happen? Well, it happened in two different ways. Number one, have you been paying attention? To Jesus, Mary, he said, to, to Mary, Jesus said, don't touch me. To Thomas... He says, come and touch me. What's the difference? What's the deal? Do you like Thomas more than Mary? Was it, I mean, what, what is it? I submit to you that it's very clear if you let it sink in. Mary was holding on to Jesus and clinging to him and wanting her, him never to lose him again, hold on to him, keep, even keep him for herself. I mean, so many good things. But, but what Jesus had was to say, listen, I need you to go and share a message with others. And so I need you not to cling on to me. I need you to know that there's a, there's a purpose here to go and carry that love, that intimacy that we have to others. 
Thomas, on the other hand, was standing way back, saying, I'm not sure. I don't believe that he's come back. And Jesus is saying, come, touch, see. Because when that happens, something miraculous happens. And I don't know where you are. Maybe you associate with Mary wanting to hold on to things and not share. Maybe you associate with Thomas saying, I'm going to play it safe. I'm a, I'm a cool guy. Whatever it is, repent. Turn to Jesus and turn and let him use you for something powerful. William Barclay gives us a clue what, what he says that, that Jesus saw in Thomas was an uncompromising honesty and a full surrender to certainty. Now, those things led him to be a doubter, but what did Jesus do? He grabbed that doubt and he turned it just a bit. He transformed it for his purposes, and that kind of resilient, strong became what what the gospel was carried on to the outermost parts of the earth. That is something he does with each one of us when we engage him and fully receive him. I want to repent of when I just sort of accept things without any critical thinking, because that becomes a milquetoast faith instead of being all out for Jesus. Doubts can be used of God for good. Lord Tennyson wrote in in a poem once these two phrases that you'll see on the screen. What he said was, there lives more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than in half the creeds. It's not about saying the right things. It's not about doing the right things blindly. It's about really engaging Jesus in the midst of this. When you do, things happen. We've already heard that tears turn into trust and a story to tell. We've heard that fears get transformed into a a, a faithful message. And you'll see on the, the, the screen here that not only do tears and fears get transformed, but doubts do as well. Those fears become that forward-focused forgiveness message. Doubts, indulge me with the alliteration, it just happens every once in a while. Doubts develop into dependence upon God. You saw that in Thomas. Determination to follow him wherever he would lead. This is, this is our call. This is powerful. And it's exactly why, when we get to the end of this passage we're studying today, that those things come together into a couple of verses that should sound really familiar to you. Verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Pastor Matt would say, life with a capital L. Those verses should be very familiar to you because they are the core of the gospel and they are our opportunity to put these kind of things into practice. If we believe and have life, this kind of transformation happens in us. So let's talk about that because I've I've spent a lot of time walking you through these three stories and telling you about some of what is in the scripture and it's a powerful passage of scripture, but how do we apply it the way that Mary applied it and Thomas and and the disciples? And I I submit to you that there's actually just a couple of different ways for, for you to do that, for me to do that and for us to do that. Three words, pray, invite, and serve. So we're gonna begin with praying. What does it look like for us to put this into practice in our life by praying for Jesus' kingship here and now? 
Nathan, again, articulated this earlier so powerfully. King, we sang it. All hail King Jesus. Jesus' kingship allows us to be freed for the life that we see reflected in these passages. So we pray for things like elections. Why? Because every candidate, I don't care what party, every position, every, every platform begs you to believe it as the hope of tomorrow. It might help a little bit, but who is our hope? Who is the only Savior? Who is the only one who comes in as king? And and how do we free ourselves from seeing ourselves as citizens of, of this country or any country? First, we are citizens of heaven. We are king's kids. We are those who need to pray that God would use our election process here in the next couple of weeks to be a catalyst to turn people toward the only hope that prevails. Racial reconciliation. The stamp of the image of God is put on every one of us because of our differences and shows up in our diversity. Unless we really embrace one another and see the hope in this. So pray for that, friends. Please pray for that. Pray for justice and mercy. Do you get what happened in this passage? I tried to emphasize it earlier, but, but so often we don't regard women well in our world. And some countries, some areas are better than others. But look at Jesus honoring Mary in this, this way, sending her out first, uh, caring for her so well. We would do well to pray that we would do the bare minimum, at least that much. In, in our lives, and, and the justice and mercy would come for not just women, but any oppressed or any children. We have to have childlike faith. So praying. Secondly, invite. This is core to what we just saw here. Inviting people to come follow me as I follow Jesus. If you invite others to follow you as you follow Jesus, you get the opportunity to tell your story. You get your opportunity to live in relationship with, like we've talked about, to make disciples. Making disciples is Jesus's plan A, always has been. Now, I know you're uncomfortable because inviting others to follow me as I follow Christ, it's not about cloning. We don't need a lot of me. We need a lot of Jesus. And making disciples is about helping someone else to follow him well. And, and we, we need that. The world needs that. I, I just have to say, the barrier for me is that if you follow me, what you're going to see is my, my life's pretty much a mess. I, I don't have it all together. I am daily living in dependence upon Jesus to be my hope and my all in all. I borrow a phrase from my Celebrate Recovery friends quite often. God is a master of turning my mess into a message. That's why we've got to invite others and tell our story. So thirdly, pray, invite, and serve. Serve others because Jesus sent us out just as as the Father sent him. Start with Serve Day next Saturday. Sign up. I'm going to do it today. I want you to do it as well. Let's make Matt Shiles, he's our missions director, find 20 more projects for us to impact this. We've got projects that are here on site at Northland, other, other agencies and partners in the community, and things that you can do right from your home as a part of uh, a, a group. Please Put this kind of stuff into action with me. Join me in that. Stewarding your gifts. A big part of serving is this realization. Everything that we have been given, even this message, the resources we have, the time we have, the talents we have, we we are simply meant to be caring for those for the benefit of others. And when I shared this last night, I had somebody come up after the service and say to me, you know, 
As I was praying during the service, God told me to double my tithe. It's wonderful. I celebrated. I thought that's fantastic. That's only part of the picture. If that's what God tells you to do, do it. But if he tells you to serve, if he tells you to give some other way, do it. Listen and let him use you. The privilege of being used by God is outstanding. And every one of you who are children's ministry volunteers like Paul and just others who are around is that Joe over there? I can't can't see everybody quite as well as I want to. You are stewards of a majestic set of gifts. Give. And then finally, there's there's really so much more. But what I want to draw to your attention, and I I need to give credit, uh, several points in this message I I owe to a little book that N.T. Wright wrote a few months back called God and the Pandemic. This book, God in the Pandemic, was his quick response to say, how do we act in the midst of this time of panic and worry and fear? And and he did something very powerful in there. He talks about how if you really study the history of the early disciples all the way up through the history of the church, something powerful comes out. All of them, not everybody, but let let me rephrase that. The early disciples and heading up through the church, they did something very powerful. They believed the message that you're hearing today. And what happened was, and they they actually had a strong faith in the fact that there was life after the grave. And they saw that and realized there's a fearlessness that we can have because we know this is not all that there is. And we have been freed from fears and dares and doubts, and we have something to offer. And so the early Christians throughout the Roman Empire, even into the plagues and other pandemics around the world, what did they do when family members and friends left people alone because they were afraid of catching a disease? The Christians moved in. They, they came close. They served. They nursed those who were ill and came to the aid of those who were suffering, sometimes actually helping them to heal and other times dying themselves. That's that's hard to hear. I don't want you to die. I don't want you to put yourself in a reckless position. But I want you to hear the truth of this message and this passage of Scripture and realize clinging to life in an isolated manner, is not life. There must be a way for us to put these things into practice that makes a difference in this world, makes a difference in our lives and the lives of others. As I close here, I I feel like I have a story to tell too. A story where I was able to begin, an opportunity even, to begin putting what I'm talking about into practice. And it actually happened months ago. I was just reflecting on it and preparing for this and realizing this, yeah, I see. It's a small way. It's a little baby step. But all of us have to start with baby steps. So what happened? Right at the beginning of the the COVID fear and scare, I, I got a call from my mom. And we were trying to stay apart from each other. And she said, Kevin, your dad... You know your dad. <laughs> my, my dad, my 85-year-old father who's sitting right here, um, he has been meticulously groomed his entire life. I, I, I love that about him. Um, fingernail clippings and such. And she just said, you know, he's got Parkinson's. I, I'm, we're just not as, as solid in being able to clip fingernails as we used to be. And, and we can't go, to the, can't go to the manicuring place or anything like that. And, and just... 
just said, would you, would you consider coming over and, and clipping his, his fingernails? And I, and I thought, oh, sure, no big deal. But, but the more I got close to coming to there, I realized I'm, I'm going to have to be real close to him. I'm going to be breathing on him. So I, I literally, the first time I did this, <laughs> I sat there next to him and, and I had my mask on and I tried to hold my breath as I clipped his fingernails. How, how well do you think that worked? Not, not so well. But, but I did it. We got through it. It was fine. Being on blood thinners, obviously you got to be careful. So I, I'm just, I was, I was nervous. Honestly, what I was, I was fearful. I was afraid. What if I give him COVID? What if, what if we end up sick or suffering or even dying? I mean, I don't, I don't want to be the one responsible for that. And, and as time went on, you know what happens. Fingernails grow. <laughs> so, I don't know, three weeks later, my mom says, can you come over and do that again? This time I decided, I, I, we've really got to talk about this. And as my dad and I talked, and even as my mom and I spoke, we... We didn't arrive at this directly, but, but what eventually came was looking at each other in the eyes and saying, you know, I'd rather face suffering, death, difficulty, in the midst of relationship and closeness and love and being with each other. That's worth it. That's a value. I'm not going to live in fear. I'm not going to live alone. I'm going to move toward the ones I love. And and it really impacted me. Now, I'm still going to wear a mask, and I'm still going to be very careful when I cut his fingernails, but that's my baby step into putting this into practice. I submit to you, look around you. What does it look like to live a life where the tears and the fears and the doubts that consume us get wiped away and transformed by the Savior who has appeared, is alive, he is risen, And we live miraculous, victorious, resurrected lives. Let's do that together. Let's symbolize what that means together, even by what we do in worship right now. It's time to turn to the table for a time of communion.